0: I can hear sirens outside of my window.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe they're coming from your heart as well. Um, But (laughs) hey, everybody, I think we're live. Uh, (laughs) Welcome in the sirens. This is good. It adds to the dynamic here. So welcome, everybody, to another Real Real Conversation here with Wellbeing's. So yeah, so just for the people who are driving, people who are sitting at home, people who are at work, whether you're watching it live or whether it's um, you're watching the replay, just take a moment. Like, we want you to join us. Just take a seat at the table with us here. Let's slow it down a little bit. You know, If you're driving the car, you can park on the, on the, on, on the hard shoulder or you can just like, come into the body a little bit. Just an invitation to slow it down and maybe hear what we're saying and feel more even what happens when you hear us say things. See if notice if something resonates, something moves you and feel free to comment and and ask questions or or, or share things that that are happening for you as you hear us share some real important stories, some important information uh, uh, and just really to, to really Explore many many flavors here today. <clears throat> so I really want to uh, introduce Linda Tai, everybody. I feel very honored to have her here. Linda's a trauma therapist specializing in brain and body based uh, trauma therapies. She's a storyteller, and you're going to feel that. And I really resonate with Linda because from Ireland, they, there's a thing called being a bard, and I feel that I'm aspiring to be a bard also. So I really love the the dynamic of someone who is a heartfelt storyteller. She's a freelance educator and an adjunct faculty member at Fairbanks, uh, which is an Alaska uh, university. She also assists the very famous Dr. Bezel, an international sort of psychiatrist and trauma expert in his uh, uh, workshops and groups, healing uh, sort of trauma attachment. She also runs her own groups and workshops and all the information is in the links below. Linda's also, family survived the post-war in vietnam by uh, finding refuge in australia and linda as a young adult has traveled extensively and intensely uh, throughout the world uh whether between fr- freelance gigs or stumbling around uh meditating centers and yoga ashrams or um so i know sorry, uh, camping or, or couch surfing. She was on a quest to really find herself, to really find a home. And she did. And she's, I think it's an evolving process. But she's now based in Alaska, in the Fairbanks, down a lovely lane uh, into the woods, in a little cabin with no, no running water. She lives simply and close to the earth. And I am very honoured to welcome Linda Tai, everybody. Thank you.
0: Mm, thank hey, you. Hey, Linda. <laughs> thank you for the warm introduction, Nigel. Mm. Yeah, I actually felt myself slowing down as you slowed down and it gave me permission to actually enter into the memory lane of my own life. Yeah. It's been a journey. Hmm.
1: Yeah, so, yeah let's, let's just see where that, where, what pops first in your memory, like where, oh, I, yeah. I, I, as I was sitting earlier, I was thinking about, wow, well, like, I wonder what it was like for you as, you know, as the memories of childhood, of like having to live in, an, like your parents having to go the struggle of being refugees, you know, for, you know from a, a war-stricken land and the, and the trauma of that. So I mm-hmm. suppose... I'm really I'm really curious about that early time in your life and how was that or how how, how wasn't that okay for you? How what, what was the challenges of being a young girl in a in a foreign land?
0: Well, I'm I'm not deflecting, I'm not minimizing, but I actually I actually go to somewhere else. Okay. And the re- and and I think it has purpose. Because for me, finding Alaska was finding a third space because in Australia, I never felt Vietnamese enough because of this disconnection from homeland and disconnection from tradition, disconnection from ancestors, because, you know, that's what trauma does. Trauma disrupts and it disorients and it disconnects and it disembodies. And so it was so growing up in Australia, I never felt quite Vietnamese enough. And I also never felt quite Australian enough. And so hence the traveling, right? making concentric circles outwards until I could find somewhere or something that tethered me back into my body, a sense of family of choice, a sense of my own expression of me in this world. And that led me to Alaska. And it was actually in Alaska that I got to experience how Vietnamese I am and how Australian I am. Because I would find myself hoarding Vegemite in case (laughs) Armageddon actually happened and making scrambled eggs with Vegemite toast or soft-boiled eggs with Vegemite soldiers in Alaska, right? And I was like, wow, I actually am really Australian. And I was making moose meat pies, and caribou meat pies because you can't get meat pies over here. They all have sweet fruit meat pies, not the savoury ones that we are used to, you know, growing up in Australia. And the and I the like also, the pies.
1: <laughs> yes.
0: And I also got to discover how Vietnamese I actually am, yeah. And so I was making moose pho and caribou pho and wild duck rice paper rolls and caribou spring rolls and egg rolls and halibut slightly steamed in a light soy sauce with green I'm onions getting hungry I hungry now.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> damn you do that to me all the time
0: <laughs> yeah and and the thing is food is connection to culture is connection to traditions is connection to ancestors all right and slowly piece by piece i began to reforge a connection to the land as well as to traditions, as well as to culture, as well as to ancestors. And then once that was in place, I then was able to do the work of repairing what trauma had done to my family. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I tell the story in that way because my training has been in Western psychotherapy. And some of you may have learned about attachment theory and learned about attachment theory within the, the frame of psychotherapy, which does come from this white coloniser settler paradigm, where it's the sterility of the dyadic relationship between the mother and the child and the imprinting or lack of imprinting that happens that then causes your adult relationships to mirror or reflect what happened as well as what didn't happen. And yet from a cultural somatics perspective, secure attachment is this connection to land, connection to ancestors, connection to nature, connection to tending to the land and to the animals in a way that we learn as a result of cultural traditions inherited through ancestors. And it's secure attachment to time and secure attachment to my body, as well as to other bodies. And so I was only able to do the work of the psychodynamic aspect of healing once I was able to reform, reconnect to secure attachment to this larger cultural collective um, perspective as a lived experience in my own body that I think gets overlooked so much in psychotherapy.
1: Yeah, like I've never heard... It explained so wonderfully there because we've often heard of yeah my approach to healing is for anybody who's who's a therapist will know this and for anybody who does know at a therapist is like there's many you can do the top down approach which is very cognitive or you can do the bottom up approach and it, which is very somatic but this feels like the real bottom up approach which is it's it's all of it it's this whole I'm starting from that foundation of my existence my culture and i'm really allowing myself to come home to that and i'm building that so i have a stable ground and then i can work on the psychodynamic whatever sort of aspect that you're you're doing with your therapist or your counselor or your group th- group therapy experience or workshops it's like you got to we got to I think this is so wonderful and essential here, Linda. That you know that the that the viewers feel this that it's like the healing starts at home, and it starts at home, or it starts like like to hear you talk about like I don't even you know like I'm like to hear you talk about caribou and talking about making meat pies and like these are the simple simple things, but they're so powerful to come back to. Who am I? I'm sitting here thinking of my, about my granny's rhubarb jam right now. That's where I'm, I'm at. I'm, I'm all up in the clove and ginger rhubarb jam that my mother makes. You know, what I'm thinking about mm-hmm. the joy and the pleasure, and how we we come back into time, but we come back to us again in those things. So that's the one. That's probably the best description of really the foundational steps that one can make that stabilizing to really make that platform for 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 instead of being t- stuck in therapy for for your whole life and then always saying nothing's changing. Like, how often do we hear that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, wow. does that does that does that get it?
0: Yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, because the other aspect of this this paradigm of psychotherapy is the four walls of this office, and you got to do the work within the four walls of this office, and then go back out into the world and live your merry life. And what happens when the world is actually the problem? Yeah. You know when 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 one inhabits a marginalised identity, combined with late-stage capitalism, right, combined with rampant um, consumerism, rampant capitalism, rampant um, colonisation, that has become so much a part of our culture that we think that it's normal to be disembodied. We think that it's normal that a nuclear family is a family, that we think it's normal to just buy your food at the store because that's what everyone does and to have this this disconnection from that which nourishes our bodies and our souls. And by re-tethering ourselves to something bigger than ourselves in terms of how we live, then what I end up doing with my life is, is sort of secondary to that. Yeah, and yet we have all these forces chronologically through time that has disconnected us from ourselves. And I think that that's the piece that isn't talked about so much in psychotherapy is the piece about time. Yeah, that this secure attachment to time has become so disrupted that we live in a state of urgency. I've got to heal now. Yeah rather than looking back over time and seeing the historical traumatization that has resulted in intergenerational survival strategies that has become decontextualized over time that we label it as my dysfunctional family or my dysfunctional culture yeah and then we start to turn in on ourselves and get even further away from the roots and the essences of who we are, and what um, what didn't get passed on to us.
1: Yeah, this you know like we touched on this on, a, on, a, on a, a sort of a conversation we had a couple of weeks ago, around again where how behaviour can be confused as trauma, how cultural as you know how things can mask the trauma, and I think it's just that's just the way it is, but there's actually something much deeper going on. Me share a little bit more about that because it feels like all those generations with self, family, culture, and how they can be blurred, um, and and how that the trauma can be hidden, uh, and how it can really impact.
0: Yes, yes, yes. Um, let me give you an example that's offered by Dr. Joy DeGruy, who wrote Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome, and she talks about how back in the cotton fields, yeah, in like an enslaved woman would be working in the fields with her son, and this, you know, the the slave master or slave owner would come along and say, "Wow, your son, he's looking so nice and strong. He's going to grow up to be a, a fine young man." And the mother will say, "Oh no, he's not. He's lazy. Don't you look at him? He's worthless." Yeah, but the reason that she's saying that is because Family separation was very real. Where Enslaved people were treated like cattle and dismembered. Families were dismembered, yeah? However, you fast forward a few generations and people turn up to therapy and say, my grandmother doesn't love me. My mother doesn't love me. Uh, the, The only thing I deeply wish is for them to hear them say that they're proud of me. Yeah. And so that which was a survival strategy back then, yeah, becomes decontextualized over time. Yeah. And then we think, oh, it's my screwed up culture, it's my screwed up family. Yeah, in my cultural tradition, I'm Vietnamese Chinese. Yeah. And we have been colonized by the French. There was 30 years of war with America after that. And prior to that, there was uh there was um chinese subjugation of the vietnamese people yeah mm-hmm. and so saying yes when we meant no and saying no when we meant yes and just nodding and making you happy and then going off and doing our own thing was how we survived and yet decontextualized over time that can be misperceived as indirect communication being slimy being manipulative being not trustworthy
1: Yeah, passive aggressive, even.
0: Yes, yes, not being able to get a, get a straight answer from my yeah, parents, which drove, drove me nuts for years. But yeah, you know it wasn't what? Safe. It wasn't safe, and so that don't trust, don't talk, don't feel, which is a part of how we can label or pathologise alcoholic families, right? And my parents weren't alcoholic; they were just traumatised. So we didn't talk, or trust, or feel in our home. And yet when trauma has become decontextualized over time, we forget that they are survival strategies. When you're living under a communist regime, you better learn to not talk and not trust and not feel because that's how you survive.
1: Yeah. And I was brought up in a war zone living in Northern Ireland uh, and uh, exactly the same thing, exactly the same thing. Mm -hmm. You know, you couldn't talk openly. You had to hold in your true feelings You know, you could uh, share one thing to somebody because they had a particular view and you'd share something else to somebody else. And then inside you'd be... As a young boy, I was so confused in what to say, so I ended up saying nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. about everything, you know. Just learn to hold it. And and, and that didn't work after a while either, you know, Mm because then you need to medicate it. Yeah. And then you need to keep running. And, you know, and you split off from your land. I remember as a young... 20 year old i used to say i was irish i used to say i was european because yeah. i just had such deep hatred for the land you know and for my world and i didn't know where it was coming from you know Wow. so i as i hear you talk about this and the way that you talk about it brings these places into my heart i start to feel i feel that like these are places i've worked with worked through but they come alive as i hear you talk about it this is something that for the viewers watching, like just feeling into, like, you know, I was sitting here earlier as well, thinking like, what would be like, what are the signs for people to know that they have trauma? Like, what are the signs when there's transgenerational haunting, like what's the signs where maybe there's something else there that's that's adding to the calamity in your relationship or the or the struggle with you and your children? Like, you know, so I'm, I suppose, Linda, I know, like what about if we open that up a little bit, like what? what are those things, you know, as you, you named a few of them there, like about, you know, the styles of communication and like, there's thousands of them, you know, it's not, it's not just a a handful, you know, but what would be key things to look for, for the viewer who who would be curious about that? Yeah.
0: For me, you know, these various expressions of disrupted secure attachment, to self, to identity, to land, to culture. It manifests as a chronic sense of bereftment, of homelessness, as well as a needing for a sense of certainty or home. And... For many of us, we push that feeling down. Yeah, what are you talking about? I I know who my people are. I know what my identity is. I know my place in the world. And yet there's this little knocking at the soul's door that says there's a peace. There's a peace that's missing. Yeah, And I don't know what it is. And it is so worthwhile to embark or engage upon the journey of exploring and discovering.
1: wanting to step on that journey to really you know you know to be accompanied into you know having also fresh eyes uh someone else to to think differently about it than you to be curious with you um
0: Mm -hmm. yes
1: yeah and at this time in the earth right now there's a lot of people having a real struggle with uncertainty
0: yeah yes yes and you know trauma isn't just what happened that shouldn't have happened. Trauma is also what didn't happen that should have happened. Exactly. Right. And it's the missing experiences, the someone who wasn't there to protect you, someone who wasn't there to take delight in you, someone who wasn't there to witness you, to accompany you. Accompaniment is a huge missing experience, and yet we don't get what we didn't get. And so we walk through the world missing something that I've never experienced, and yet it can place big craters in one's life and in a similar way grief has been framed by modern society as I had something and now it's been taken away from me whereas my work with adult children of you know intergenerational traumatization is there's this aspect of grief that I call ambiguous grief I'm mourning something or I'm carrying the weight of something that I never got to have and the not having of it. Mm. Yeah. And if we look at the stages or the phases of grief, right, numbness, shock, denial, Mm -hmm. anger, resentment, bargaining, depression, existential malaise, acceptance. And then moving on, or bargaining, then acceptance, then moving on to meaningful purpose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so a lot of the folks I work with have official diagnoses of major depressive disorder recurrent, and it's actually ambiguous grief.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I always see depression as a suppression of something. You know, it was always in my sort of, you know, uh, you know like young mind in this world of, of psychologies, always saw it as just something was not able to move. Something yeah. got stuck along the way and it was building up a traffic jam within their being. And yeah. And yeah, and, yeah. and again, and, for anybody... Uh, sorry, Linda, go ahead.
0: Oh, and anger is something that, you know, just like depression is something that's stuck, anger is something that hasn't been able to be held, right? So, anger as unmetabolized grief is so common. Yeah, yeah. yes, mm-hmm. and we need to have our anger held because it's what it's it's having our grief be held. There's something that I didn't get or that was taken from me that rocks me through to the very core of me. Mm-hmm. And I need you to see that.
1: Yeah. And uh, in this moment, and it brings me back to the, you know, I, I had skipped through meditating, you know, stumbled. I love that word stumbling. I stumbled through all, all these Easter places for years. And, uh, and I'd seen different ways of people working with anger or dismissing or anger. And I remember the one time I was able to allow myself to sit with another uh, vital being, another enlivened being opposite me where I wasn't trying to get my anger out. I was just allowing myself to fully be with it and fully be with the full rage in my core to be with it, not discharging, just being with it and having another enlivened being who was there with me. And whenever I had that, this grounded in, then it changed and it moved through my and it was witnessed, it was seen, it was, you know, it was again this wonderful word that we both use accompanied, and it just changed the deal for me in that in that in that one moment. And uh again, I love how you, your heart speaks through your you know, your mind and and, and your and, and your being, and it brings me back to these places. So does that resonate with in your experience where you just, where you sit with it and, Mm -hmm. and it's being held. And like how often are we in a world, whether it's a spiritual world or in the normal, um, demographic everyday life that anger is not really acceptable, you know, but, but yet the fundamental of Mm -hmm. it's like, I want something with you, you know, like I'm here and when it gets dismissed then it turns inward to apathy or Depression or externally to violence towards, you know, when when it to unreliable environments and non responsive environments. So, so you, yeah, you, I'm feeling this right. I'm remembering that the person's eyes that was able to meet my eyes in my pain when and, and the importance of that for people who are watching, whether you're depressed, whether you're suffering with anger, if you're noticing you're being angry and aggressive towards your partner to your kids to your colleagues to your friends where you have to be like uh you know like that there's something maybe else going on underneath and like to reach out we can't do this thing again this is like this thing called life by ourselves like just to reach out if you're depressed
0: Mm -hmm.
1: you know and and maybe you're stuck at bitterness maybe you're bitter Mm
0: -hmm. you know
1: because that's something i see a lot in my therapy room where there's a bitterness you know and where there's just this sort of uh, you know, bargaining state that never gets moved out of, you know, or, or just completely, yeah, it's like, I'm talking to them. Uh, I'm still checking their, their Facebook page. I'm still, I'm still haven't let go yet, you know, and the torture and the pain and the suffering. Again, mm-hmm. for anyone who's watching, who's you know, kind of suffering with any sort of health feeling or emotion, it's important to reach out. Um, there's mm-hmm. ways, there's ways to work through it.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I find I found that for myself, connecting to books, connecting to people who were able to give words to my internal experience allowed me to feel validated in a way that previously I'd felt judged, criticised, shamed for having these intense emotions that weren't acceptable to other people. And when we talk about, we can't talk about trauma without talking about grief. Because for many of us, we experience a confluence of the two, which is traumatic grief, where I've never been accompanied, I've never had a container for my feelings. And so the whiff of the sniff of any of the emotions that are a part of the cycle of grief causes for my nervous system to go into a trauma response. I go into fight, flight, freeze or flop and having worked in addiction recovery for I don't know 12 13 14 years now as well as being a person who is in long-term recovery I see that so much of the substances and behaviors of coping is not just coping with trauma it's coping with traumatic loss and traumatic Mm -hmm. grief as well as the trauma of having been unaccompanied Yeah, and it can be very confusing when it's ambiguous grief that your body is having a traumatic response over.
1: Wow. Yeah, this is the, you know, this, like, you know, again, this word accompaniment, you know, uh, like people. Yes. And due to our histories, due to our ancestors, due, and how we've somehow become separate from other people and, are mm-hmm. like distant, you know, or merged. Um, and somehow it's the key. I, I'm sitting here in my, again, I see a lot in like, like, imagery, imageries as I, as I sit with people. And it's just like, I'm like, you know, as, there's so much about these different flavors of trauma. Um, and I love the word ambiguous and, and, and the key, you know, like the, the, the you know, like we talked, we, we, we started up with this wonderful, you know, sort of image of like how we build it up from the ground up, from the culture, from the cooking, from, from being on the land, you know, living simple and living mm-hmm. close to the land and, and being connected to, it and what that, whatever that means. Right. Uh, uh, and to really deepen our understanding of what that means. And as we journey through that, and then we come towards eventually, as we go from the bottom up, we, we end up meeting this thing called another person, you know? <laughs> and then, and then what, what do we do then? You know, like <laughs> how do we, so I suppose I come from a, a culture that I think is Irish, that is also a little bit similar to the Vietnamese in a way, uh, not totally, but this, the similarities, and where there's a big thing about, in private there's a big thing about holding this big thing and especially asians they use that saving saving face you know Mm -hmm. and so there's this sort of cultural ancestral sort of pull away from not letting someone see the hurt the grief somehow creating an impotence towards ever being able to have that accompaniment Mm -hmm. so i'm curious linda in your work like how do you how do you what would be something you would be able to share here that would help people who are listening who struggle with closeness or struggle with togetherness and keep securely private from the world their their life their inner 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 landscape um i've I've, i would just love your take on how do do we bridge that how because that's a piece that I think is super important for the for the world right now how do we how do we work with closeness and togetherness mm-hmm. how do we how do we start that conversation
0: yes yes for many of us a wa- accompaniment wasn't available or it wasn't available on a consistent basis or or we got the absolute opposite of that yeah and to to one to one just recognize that yeah because as a result of that core wounding we can mistake enmeshment for intimacy yeah yeah and we can also mistake aloneness and safety for loneliness And to begin by recognising that everything that you're experiencing is likely a, an intergenerational survival strategy. Yeah. Yeah. And I get to choose whether I wish to metabolise that or not. And metabolism is the process, it's an alchemical process that happens slowly and yet creates fuel for growth and nourishment. And so, if we go too fast, we're not metabolizing. We're, you get getting, indigestion. we're getting bloated, <laughs> we're getting indigestion, we're constipated.
1: constipated. <laughs> <laughs> which we all know about.
0: Um, yeah, yes, yeah. You know, the desire for, for belonging, for attunement, for connection is very basic and it's very primal and it's a need that we have. And yet, you know, I see the work of the therapist or the healer as being able to eventually invite my clients into group environments, whether it's drumming, singing, dancing or psychotherapy, psychodynamic groups. But the thing is, and and the reason for this is because to be seen and to be heard and to be known is a function of groups. And it's a function of community. However, when your first experience of group or community, which is family of origin has been not so welcoming, then group is the last thing you ever want to experience. And then we live in this meta structure that says, go find your one special individual other who will hear you, know you, hold you, be your everything, including your mentor, your best friend, your spiritual guide, and your lover. And it's a recipe for disaster. And so the more that we can heal some of the the wounding from that family of origin and repair that, the more that we can then reconnect to groups and communities as places within which being seen and heard and held and known um, gets satiated and satisfied and fulfilled. And then from this place, I'm able to interact in my dyad with my Special other, alleviating that person of the burden.
1: Yeah, you kind of, you know, this thing about you know, the knows, uh, and for anybody who's watching knows the passion I have for groups and uh, the passion I have for uh, responsive, uh, reliable environments where people come and where the they re-experience what they could never. Or they, what they didn't get a chance to experience growing up, or what their ancestors didn't get an experience to to growing up with, is this sense of togetherness, the sense of being valued for who you are, not what you do, to be able to uh, to really feel this 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 term, like to be really to really belong and to feel the to belong because you of who you are, you know, and, and the magic of that, and then the bridging of that into the world to be able to take that back in. Are true, uh, and you have a, a wonderful way with words. I'm just going to make it even like kind of basic. It's like this this sort of cooking process, and you get flavored, and you get, you know, like there's this. Um, ch- it can be challenging sometimes, and it can be so uh, so beautiful and so like uh, um, joyful, mm-hmm. and everything in between of what it means to be met, to be seen, to be heard, to be celebrated, to be. Uh, a candle that is equal to everyone in the group that just casts different shadows depending on how the candle flickers. And and to be able to start to, how that changes the cellular being, how that starts to really help you walk differently on the land and how you are in relationship. And, you know, this is, yeah. So I'm really curious, Linda, what was your first experience of, um, you know, apart from your, like, when are we not in groups Right? When are we not in groups? But when? When did you start to feel the difference of a responsive environment, a sort of uh, a sort of being seen? Like as I'm talking, I remember my first moment when I was in, in a particular group. But I'm curious around the journey of like of yeah, wanting to understand the 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 others' experience of was there a spark or a moment when you were in an environment that was so different or so re- sort of reliable or safe or like, I'm curious, Like what, when was that moment where you were in an environment? There may be many of those moments, but what jumps out as a, as, a, as a memorable moment for you where you were in an experience like that?
0: I'm not deflecting. I'm just going sideways to bring it back. Mm-hmm. You know, for me, this tethering to ancestor and land and all these th- that security, it allowed me to experience safe enough.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Because as a trauma survivor, I used to default to trust and mistrust as two mm-hmm. separate things. And when there is enough embodied safeness, Because safety is something in the external world. Safeness is when it begins to land on the inside. And when there's enough safeness, I can move through the world. And instead of looking at the world as trust, mistrust, or safe, unsafe, I can enter into safe enough. I can be the one that throws the anchor for myself. Yeah. And for me, that happened for me during a Bessel van der Kolk experiential psychodrama workshop where there were 35 people in the space sitting in circle and Bessel is the director. I'm the protagonist and I recreate the tableau of my life through asking group members to enroll into the role of my real mother and my real father and to invite group members to enrol into the role of my ideal mother and ideal father, as well as having a support person who's got my back. And that holding container that was safe enough allowed me to descend into my deep longings, into my grief, into all that which I didn't get to have and so deeply wished I had have had and to communicate that and to sculpt other people into the proximity as well as the body posture Mm -hmm. so that I could feel the depth of that in my own body and then into the space of that wound to have the ideal mother turn up. And then I would say if, you know, I, I wish my mother had a sang to me as a child Yeah. and this beautiful woman is holding me and she says to me, if I were your ideal mother, I would have sang to you and you would know my voice through every single cell in your body. Right? And then I would, do, I blubbered, I bl- like ugly crying from the depths of the birthright that I didn't get. And so there's this back and forth and back and forth. And I left that experience with a somatic imprint of what it would have felt like to have had an ideal mother. And after that, I moved through the world differently. It was, it was, it was like, wow, this is how people move through the world who had like ideal mothers or who had half-decent mothers. And it was immediate. I was with friends and one of my friends said, hey, Linda, can I carry your bag for you? And I was like, yeah, sure. And then I went, holy schmoly, it's that easy to just let someone do something for me instead of receiving that as an attack on my competence and capability that you're offering to carry my bag for me like you think I can't do that. Uh, Yeah, it was profound. It was profound. I found myself the following week in like in – In the office with my clinical supervisor and instead of sitting like a little bit side on i sat down on the couch directly in front and it was like i i could take up space in the world as i am like i am real and my feelings are real and my needs are real and it's okay that i take up space in this world as i am and i don't need to overcompensate I don't need to mask. I don't like I can let go of that imposter syndrome because the fearfulness of you rejecting the person that I don't even know who I am is no longer there. <laughs> yeah,
1: you know uh, again, you know this talks to just this place I, I know a lot within my culture, you know this this place, you know, where. I've had this very thing happen, you know, when I had reached to help because, you know, my go-to was being uh, a caretaker. That was that was my trauma response in a way. And as I was younger, you know, I was still working on it, uh, overextending, overcompensating. So I would be like, you know, Mother Teresa for everybody. So I'd be offering to carry everybody's handbag. And uh, often I would remember I would be so traumatizing when I'd have responses like, oh, I carry my own bag. You know, it's like, oh, ugh. So there's two of us in it and we didn't know we were in it. And it was just, I'm just remembering a few moments, you know, in my life where uh, I was so disturbed by when my uh, kind hearted gestures were not received. (laughs) But yeah, I see, I felt that little kid, you know, I felt, I felt her there, you know, as you were sharing, just, you know, and for everybody out there who is, who struggles with closeness or letting people in, or just know that sometimes the stuff that we don't know that needs to be known, uh, and sometimes we need help and, and support, Mm -hmm. but wow, I bet your clinical supervisor noticed something different in you that day too.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I think there was a, an ongoing lasting shift after that. And so that's what got me into learning more about these somatic therapies. Mm -hmm. And it also is what compelled me to ask Bessel and Leisha if I could assist in their private small group psychodrama workshops because it was, it was just so powerful for me. I wanted to be a part of offering that to others, to offer the missing experience, not as an intellectual exercise, not as a dyadic, you know, top-down talk therapy witnessing um, because there is truly something to being held when you are experiencing terror, panic, rage, shame, despair, that allows us to no longer turn away from ourselves and to no longer turn away from others when they're experiencing these intense emotions. Because that's the intergenerational trauma transmission right there. Yeah. Is my yeah. unmetabolized grief and loss and trauma means that I'm not able to be attuned to and available for a child's terror, rage, shame, despair, overwhelm, sadness, disappointment, mm. small joys? Yeah
1: yeah I, I again i i just use myself as a sounding board here for that because thank god i had very um vocal uh ex-girlfriends who would tell me that my behavior was not okay that when they would have a calamity or an ordinary like sort of stressful experience where was nigel oh Nigel's i'm the way off to get the shopping or um, I'll go and uh, I think it's time to go to the gym. Or well, actually, you know what? I need to go walk the dog. Uh, mm-hmm. Where I would avoid any sort of uh, mm-hmm. struggle or challenge or emotion that I that was other zen or peaceful or calm. Mm-hmm. And and it was through these wonderful reflections that there was something askew. That there was something. Uh, been reenacted, there was something that was being replayed that was happening. That, and they were insistent about letting me know about it. That was so. I'm so thankful to this day to then really start to look at. Wow, like maybe, maybe there's something to look at here. That these ordinary things, I couldn't like, I couldn't be with them because mm-hmm. I couldn't yet be with me. Yeah, you know. And...
0: Yes. I mean, one of my, one of my favorite sayings that I I can't remember which teacher shared it with. With not with me personally, but with their class, is that the thing that every single one of my ex-boyfriends has in common is me. Yeah. And you know, similar but different to your story, Nigel, I would I would be having the same relationship over and over again. And it was serial monogamy with bouts of promiscuity in between the serial monogamy. And each relationship would last two or three years and then not work out. And so I just put you on the conveyor belt and then find someone else. And at some point, I realized that I was looking for someone who needed me more than I needed them, who was more emotionally invested in me than what I was in them. And at some point in time, I would feel safe and secure enough in that relationship to to, um, to have emotions and to want things and to grow, except I had a survival-oriented relationship to my needs. So I'd go into the need, rage, shame cycle. Yeah. And then whoever the poor person I was with would then get criticised as not good enough, but really it was my own harsh inner critic and my own shame f- f- filled self that was then unleashing onto someone else and belittling someone else and crushing someone else.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and and, and you know and the the journey that uh you know again for anyone listening who noticed that the struggles that they have in their relationships where there's dynamics that keep playing out whether you're in uh sort of continual relationships where they end and they start or whether it's infidelity or whether it's, you know, like really like uh, it's just the one, but the dynamic that plays out where you are in some unhealthy loop or constantly bickering or constantly fighting or constantly distant or constantly working really hard not to be in the relationship, head of the football team, head of this council, that council, head of the, this, that, and the other. And I read in the newspaper where there's, the, where there's no contact happening or connection that maybe there's, there's something there that could be looked at and explored. I personally know that without um, being in group therapy or seeing a therapist over over time and changing my life around, uh, you're able to see with, uh, you know, I I think of a, a passage from the Quran. It's not about seeing the world through your eyes, but it's from seeing the world through the eyes of your heart, you know, to be able to meet these places, to be able to get to know the self, you know, like it's an ancient saying, but it's so true to get to know and to get the help to be able to learn how to do that. Uh, and to get to know who you're not, and to be able to give these ghosts, generational ghosts, a wee mm-hmm. burial, you know, like to over time, you know, to be able to do that and to be able to move towards other people in, 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 in a way that maybe your parents were unable to do so mm-hmm. on their ground. And to be able to, that's how we evolve. It's not just having a, a better bank balance than our parents, you know, mm-hmm. and having this big emotional deficit. You no, know, How can we not have that? How can we learn to be able to have an open heart with another being? Uh, so, wow, that's so powerful to hear you talk about that dynamic. And again, what was it that that helped you see that clearly? Was that when you started into working with someone or like, how did you start to recognize that pattern, Linda?
0: For me, I needed to stabilize my mind and the reactionary nature of my mind And I did that through Vipassana meditation and I also did it through the embodied practices of yoga, in particular Ashtanga Vinyasa. And so that gave me then the opportunity to cultivate self-awareness. Yeah. That uncomfortable honesty of recognising that I don't see the world as the world is, I see the world as I am. And that metacognition And to recognize all the ways in which I was avoiding, controlling, chasing, denying, numbing out, pretending, and pendulating back and forth between grandiosity and self-loathing. But once I could see the patterns of my reactions, I could then choose something different. Mm. And at the start, the choice is to simply observe and to notice how I want to fix and I want to make it go away and I want to be perfect, and yeah, and then to notice that compulsion as well. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And I
1: suppose at that stage or around that stage, you started to cultivate this bottom-up approach where your land and your culture and all that really helped be able to harness or allow... The tension of that stain to have a foundation that made it more possible.
0: Yes. It took 10 years. It took 10 years of meditation and yoga and resourcing. Yeah. Connecting to my body through connecting to the land, running chainsaw while I'm walking across a log. Right. That's a fully embodied mindfulness practice in that moment where I notice the mind. that created the platform for uncomfortable honesty while parallel to that attending 12-step groups and having that space within which I learned how to listen as well as I learned how to have a voice and I learned how to have a voice about my experience and about my feelings and then eventually to learn to have a voice about my feelings and my experiences in real time. You know, it is quite humbling because the the magic life hack to never ever needing to ask for help ever is to be seen and to be heard and to be known and to have your struggles be known <laughs> to your community. Yeah. And so it, it it became layers of skills and resources that I reached for, um, or that landed, were were offered, and yet. There was something about the grace of of yoga and mindfulness that allowed me to slipstream into the deeper currents of life. And when there's that tethering then into the deeper currents, it was, you know, someone would say, hey, Linda, read this book, The Body Keeps the Score. It's coming out soon. And I'd be like, yeah. Whereas in the past I'd be like, yeah, no, I don't want to receive anything from anyone. Whereas, you know, now things come and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that. Yeah. Yeah. And I got it the day it came out on my way to the airport as I was heading back to Bali to do a solid stint of Ashtanga with my teachers, working on dropbacks, where it's inhale, reach up, exhale, land in a backbend. Inhale, come back up to standing. And you can't do that without trusting your teacher. You can't do that without receiving help. And so to, to, to get that book while at that confluence of my Practice. It was noticing all of my resistance coming up.
1: Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. These. these all, yeah. No. Sorry. Go ahead.
1: No. Just. Uh, just these little. You know. Because that's that. That's your teacher's book, right? Yeah. Yeah. So just the synchronicity of things, but then these other experiences in life that were showing you the the struggle towards trusting, the struggle towards surrendering, the struggle towards you know uh all the all the familiarity with rigidity you know all these things as you were sharing that 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 comes jumps out at me and wow and and after reading like how I was reading that book at that time you know like
0: Oh, it was perfect because I got to cry every day. Mm-hmm. And that book made me realize that I was a trauma survivor because trauma survivors don't have memories, they have symptoms, and I had all of the symptoms.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, then maybe it's a duck. And that then, I mean, it was a book that helped me to make sense to myself. And from there I was able to be curious. Mm-hmm. And that curiosity got me reading some more and all of the treatment therapy modalities that Bessel talks about in that book, I then went and studied and got trained in because someone had given me a roadmap in terms of how to heal.
1: Wow. 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 Yeah, books can be powerful, but when they're given to you, when you when you when you're able to open up and be able to receive it at the right time, they can be more than they can be exactly that next doorway that would not have been there before. That starts to, when you start to look at the self, when you start to slow down and be curious and start to look at your life, start to look at your relationships, then these doors that never would have been there before can present themselves and get the option to walk through and that felt like a walk-through moment for you when you know to allow that experience of working your body somatically physically and to have these downloads of uh from bessel's work uh to really help you understand the the broader broader picture of what what's what's needed for this journey back to self again you know and
0: uh, wow and it's also validating as well because in his book he talks about being able to expand the capacity of your nervous system because trauma survivors have nervous systems that are uh, easily, you know, go, 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 hypervigilant, hyperaroused or aroused <laughs> Flop. <laughs> and he, he promotes yoga and meditation as ways to stabilise as well as to cultivate a relationship with one's body and with one's thoughts. And it cultivates the ability to notice. And that was so validating for me because that's what I had been doing for the last 10, you know, the 10 years of my life prior to getting his book. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, um, I can go as... Maharishi, I can't remember what guy guide it was, but he, he, he talked about this image of a stained glass church window and yoga and meditation was the cleaning the glass on the window. There was a piece of the painted glass that was broken. That was your, you know, that was the trauma, you know, that was needing help specific help for that working with a professional. And the light that went through the window was spirituality, and it was just wonderful. Sort of, you know. Uh, I, again, I see this as I'm, uh, and, and it's sort of like a little uh, caricature in my mind as I'm as I'm hearing you talk about the different facets to the journey, the different uh levels of, you know, where, where this, and the duration that's required, you know, to really allow the integration of, you know, coming home, you know, and from the training the lens has been able to focus been able to see to be able to know you know and to be able to then have the warmth and then to be able to maybe step into a group therapy experience or with a the therapist to start to feel what it's like to be seen to be to be acknowledged to have somebody deeply interested in your heart in mm-hmm. in your mind yeah. to notice how that impacts something something starts to happen all these things that that can come together that it doesn't seem like it's happening, but it, it slowly starts to happen. And um, well, I, I'd love to hear that when you were getting these eureka moments that when you were reading the book, you yeah, I've been doing that for the last 10. Okay, so I've done this piece. Okay, what's the next piece? You know?
0: Yeah. And, oh, this is why I haven't ever been to therapy or to see a therapist, right, as well, <laughs> because so much of it is top down. Yeah. yeah and I yeah. knew that there was something I didn't have words for, and yet going and seeing someone and to not have the words for something that I didn't know how to describe because I never got it. And I don't know what it is that I never got, you know.
1: I hear this every day, you know, like I had somebody come into me about two weeks ago into the clinic and she sat down with me, Nigel, and she said, oh, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know why I'm here but my body's telling me to come here, but my mind is telling me to run out the door right now. But I have no idea why I'm here, but my life is falling apart. Uh, my relationship is with my partner is at death's door. I'm thinking about ending it, and I have no idea why I'm feeling the way I'm feeling, and I have such resistance about being here with you. And I says, well, thank you for, you know, like this is a great way for us to get started here. Like, thank you. Like, yeah, like, tell me more, you know? And there was just something about what, what you said. Like sometimes there's just, we don't know what it is. And then there's so much blank. There's these symptoms and there's no story. And the childhood was in perfect in some way or everything was ideal, And and but it's not on some level. And the courage it takes to step in there, you know? You know so just really shout out to anybody who's listening and who who I know what it takes to step in and say, hey, I need help. The, the, that journey in the car, on the bicycle, walking to another, what it takes to do that, uh, it takes something. And I think everybody has it, but it, it, it takes a bit of work to get to get there. Would you agree, Linda, on that one?
0: Absolutely. I, I, I came to my own healing work kicking and screaming. And doing anything to spiritual bypass and avoid it. And, um, you know, to be honest, I think the first five years of my yoga and mindfulness practice was spiritual bypass. And it's okay. It's part of a larger journey of recognizing that avoidance is one of the symptoms of PTSD. Absolutely. Uh, And if I'm living my life in such a way where I'm controlling it and uh, so that i can avoid feeling certain feelings ever again then that is an indication right there that there's something to be curious about and yeah we all yeah yeah i don't think anyone ever comes to therapy going okay <laughs> and at the yeah, start no, it's problem. it's oh sorry go ahead no no
1: go ahead Linda. It's fine oh. i'm just i'm just i'm thinking in my head so yeah. i will i'll 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 kick in later on let's 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 keep it going
0: Yeah. Um, At the start, it's all symptomatic alleviation. Yeah, it's the relationships, it's the codependency or the anti-dependency or the, you know, the drinking or the coping skills that aren't working for me anymore, but that's all I know, or, um, you know, suicidality, whatever, it's the top of the iceberg. And then we get to the water's edge. Yeah. And there's simmering rage there's resentments there's self-loathing there's things that I allow the world to see or perhaps I allow myself to see but then I don't want to see it so it's like it bobs up and down yeah and then we go a little bit deeper and then there's toxic shame yeah and then we go a little bit deeper and there's abandonment wounds yeah that are physical and emotional dependence Dependency needs weren't met on a consistent enough or reliable enough basis that formed a felt sense of safety and security and embodiment, yeah, as we walk through the world, which then causes us to have a survival-oriented relationship to our needs, yeah. So I have a need, deny it. Yeah, I have a need, squash it down, pretend it isn't there. I have a need, I don't, you know, and then I develop an ego about how needless I am. I have a need, and survival oriented relationship then says, Why don't you get out of my way? I have a need you need to clear out so that I can get this thing done for me. Or why aren't you attending to my need? Because I'm having a survival-oriented relationship to, to to my need and you better fulfill it. Yeah. Or we go into despair. I have a need. <sighs> I don't know why I even bother. Life is futile and useless. Yeah. And so I find that toxic shame becomes a layer that it, it overlays on top of this survival oriented relationship to my needs that I've learned to develop and it's so overwhelming that I disconnect from my own body yeah yeah because our basic biological needs as a as an infant are overwhelming and so that's where the disembodiment then begins and it's so early mm. and then yeah there's that layer of toxic shame because i There's something wrong with me, not with the world around me, yeah. And then I become layered with these strategies of survival, all or nothing thinking, control, perfectionism, rigidity, uh, uh, floppiness, people-pleasing, yeah, giving up my authenticity in order to belong or being anti-dependent, yeah. And we don't know we don't know until our life starts to fall apart or that sense of existential malaise, you know, comes knocking at the soul's door and says there's more to life than this.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I noticed when I, you know, I I worked, I still do a little bit now, but in the past for we around 18 years, I've worked in a naturopathic way with clients, you know, working as I where I met you many moons ago, uh, as a hydrotherapist working, you know, doing colonics and cleansings and, you know, really, and through that journey of really, um, seeing how the body, how when the body shuts down, when they learn to hold, when they have no needs, when they learned a long time ago, not to need or, they have demands on the world that are unmet child demands that continually keep them stuck. And how these, as a not as a, at this stage, I wasn't trained as a therapist in any shape. I uh, just, but as I was observing the bodies, you know, specifically digestive ones. You know, where there was these severe colitis, the diverticulitis, inflammation throughout the whole body, severe constipation, severe acid reflux you know, diabetes, stage two diabetes, sort of issues with uh, the liver, fatty livers and different, and then just to really being curious as the, cause I would accompany them every day mm-hmm. for some of them if they were on retreats or if I would see them once or twice a week for if they were coming as an outpatient. And I would sit with them and I would be so curious as they would tell their stories. And I would start to notice these things, these common threads of how the world was out to get them. how they were, like uh so starved there was a starvation somewhere happening in their world they won't get in what they wanted but they didn't know how to ask for it and it was just this sort of young and it started to impact me and i'm saying damn you know I, i'm a little bit similar also and i started to notice uh you know just all these correlations about when the body starts to you know hold all these sorts of lack of flow in the body, lack of movement, where there's suppression, where there's sort of some sort of frozenness and how you can get away with it a little bit for a while, but at a certain time it comes in strong. So most of the people who were coming for digestive issues, I was noticing they all had relational struggles and they all had struggles with themselves in some way. And yeah, this is, that was how I started to really be curious to know that, wow, like, I'm treating people symptomatically. And I always used to think I was treating people causatively. And and I really started said, well, wow. And that started me on the journey to want to look deeper into like what's really, what dam has been blocked in their being? Like what's boarded up here? What's become redundant? What hasn't been even used yet uh, in their psyche or in their hearts or in, or in the spaces between them and other people? So that was my, Petri dish to start to see the bigger picture of, um, and I didn't know, but I was so curious, uh, and I used myself as we do to to start a, try on different things and see what what impacted us and being able to like be with me better. Uh, but yeah, that was that was where I started to see it. It was maybe an unconventional way of seeing it, but it, it was really so so yeah so visual so visual so um, like I was so impacted by years of seeing the same thing coming in the door with the same sort of dynamics relationally. It was huge.
0: Mm, fascinating.
1: Yeah. yeah. Sometimes, um, you know, even today, I still do a little bit of it and I'm, I'm an, I'm an awful Egypt sometimes because I can't just stay with the the herbs or the detoxes and I'm straight away like totally all into, well, you know, how's your relationship going with yourself and how like it's just like it's like it's it's now i can't but not that feels like malpractice for me if i don't talk about or like it's like i'm not i'm not in alignment if i can't say okay well you know maybe you could look at this you don't have to but this is something i would invite you to feel into or have a think about or maybe read this book or you know reach out you know maybe there's something else here that this might be really um impacting where you've had this illness for your whole life you know so yeah. do you ever find that Linda when you have your clients coming in that they also deal with physical struggles yeah. sometimes as well
0: mm-hmm. absolutely absolutely you know that um, that need rage shame cycle manifests somatically mm-hmm. physiologically and neurophysiologically. Yeah, and so whenever I do an intake for someone, um, I always ask, you know, when when was the last time you went to the doctor? You know, what are the other conditions or symptoms that you're experiencing? And typically there's always something to do with the digestive system, yeah? Um, And if we look at the autonomic nervous system, right, it's digestion, it's heart rate, it's breathing, it's body temperature, yeah? Yeah. And so, yeah, issues with digestion, elimination, uh, teeth grinding. Um, If there's chronic pain in the body, I'm always curious where. And typically it's the shoulders and the neck and the low back. Um, I walk down the hallway behind my clients because I actually like to look at how they walk and where they carry the armoring in their body as well as the areas of the body where it's um, floppy or flaccid. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm. And the other thing I notice with a lot of my clients is they're either eye contact averse or they're eye contact hungry. And that's something that I just, you know, take note of.
1: Say that again, Linda.
0: They're eye contact averse Mm -hmm. or they're eye contact hungry. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, sometimes what I do is I, 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 when I after a client, I document how I'm feeling. You know, by being impacted by them, I feel sometimes what it is that I feel that's missing. You know, from what they've shared, like what hasn't been shared as well as what has been shared,
0: mm-hmm. and,
1: uh, and 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 the, the 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 eyes. I love that. I love that. I I assess the child or the adult that I see walking from the area. Not just their movement, but to notice any sort of trans kind of transferences I'm having as I see the movement. I'm trying to feel what's been unconsciously here for me from them that I'm trying to experience to understand what it is that's walking in the door to really observe that. And I love this I love that expression of seeing what's tight holded, armored, rigid, and what's what's in the flop, you know. And uh Again, for anybody who's watching, maybe there's a reason why you have that chronic stiff neck your whole life. You know, maybe there's a reason why you're always going to the chiropractor and that lower back pain just isn't going away. Maybe there's maybe there's something else that we can look at.
0: Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you mentioned that, Nigel, because my chiropractor has mentioned to me that she's kind of over seeing the same people over and over again with the same you know area between the shoulder blades. Yeah. And as we know, that's where the sympathetic activation chain begins is, you know, at the base of the neck between the shoulder blades. And she's fully aware that this is a repeat of other patterns in their lives and that what she's doing is symptomatic alleviation. And she wants so much more for them than that, but she doesn't know how to or what that might be.
1: I hope you give me your card and said, come and attend one of my workshops, love. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and, you know, we all find our own pathways to healing mm. and it's not one size fits all and it's not one journey fits all and I think that's where it can be so challenging because we we want to have a prescription rather than a description. And the rigid, traumatized part of me wanted someone to tell me what to do and how to do it so that I could become healed and whole. And what I learned in the process is that it's the process of tuning within and learning to trust at that which is knocking at my door and saying, do this thing next. This is is the right thing for now.
1: Step by step, and and then just as we're coming to, you know, we've got a few more minutes here, and I really want to, yeah, just really want to allow a little bit of space on on Mm. speaking to what you feel is relevant uh, for people uh, dealing with the way the world is today, which is no different than it has been in the past, but it's maybe more illuminated. Whether we've got the trauma that's happening in Afghanistan, the sort of the pain and suffering that's going to ensue there for the god knows the next 20 40 50 60 100 years we've got a pandemic and covid stuff going on we've got uh, this thing of the unknown haunting this uncertainty that surrounds the 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 the, the planet or horizons and as clearly defined as they once were for some people then like what could what what feels essential to speak mm-hmm. to uh, with people witnessing the way the world is and how they are and the witnessing of that, how uh, what needs to be spoken to, uh, what feels relevant to speak to. Yeah.
0: So as I pause and tap into emergence, right, that which is emerging, what arises for me is a sense of imperative around healing our own trauma. In this last week, and I'll use Afghanistan as an example, I experienced that as re-traumatising for me because of what my family lived through at the end of the Vietnam War, yeah? And I was fully aware that those who are able to leave Afghanistan now are incredibly lucky and they're the folks who have the connections to the the, um, international governments as well as international militaries. And the folks who will be scrambling to leave later on are the ones who have a lack of resources and all they have is the desperation of wanting to give a better life to their children Mm -hmm. that they currently have or those who have yet to come. And I found great solace in sharing my own experiences with other people because having lived through it, for whatever reason, as a result of that, my voice is heard more. And then I started talking to my friend, Charlie, who's, I believe is an Iraqi veteran. He's also the adult child of Vietnam, a Vietnam veteran. And he raised something to my awareness, which is that of moral injury. Yeah, that you've that these troops have fought alongside someone, lots of someones, for 10, 15, 20 years. And they're experiencing the moral injury of abandoning these people whom they've come to trust with their lives and their families. And then overlaid on top of that moral injury is is institutional betrayal because now they're following orders from their commanders, which is like, get out of here. Yeah like the mission has been called off and we are done and we will get out who we can get out. And you know what, there's other people that are taking care of that part of the, you know, the repatriation mission. And until I had dealt with my own trauma, I wouldn't have been able to be friends with someone who is a veteran Yeah, because trauma conflates things. And I conflate military members with, the industry of war. Yeah. And so my own humanity has come back to me in working through my own trauma that has allowed me to become friends with veterans who then share with me the humanity of what they're re experiencing as a result of troop withdrawal in Afghanistan. And previously, I would not have had the spaciousness in my heart to even listen take into account, I would have been playing Oppression Olympics and I would have been, you know, we would have been monkeys slinging rotten fruit at each other. Uh Yeah. And there is a humanitarian crisis unfolding, the bittersweetness of which is that our common humanity can actually arise and emerge and come forth.
1: That's very powerful, and it's, it's, it's really striking from what you're sharing there, is that because of the journey you've been on, you have this bigger heart now, more capacity, more bandwidth to be able to not have that narrowed shame, pain, vision towards military people, but to be able to allow them in. And then, through a bit, and then it opens up something else. You get something. You get to see a different perspective. You know i always see the trauma is also very narrowing of how we see the world it's like shame it really creates uh yeah it's they block so much out stop so much from happening and and through your own traumatic response to seeing a, the, the same thing happen to another country and the pain that you've seen within your own people and how that's been repeated again uh in afghanistan and to have that response in you to allow the response, first of all, to allow yourself to be responsive to that, to feel that, to allow new layers to move. And then through that, then being able to move towards uh, not the the good or bad, you know, sort of, you know, sort of mentality, but to be able to, to, to meet another soul and to hear their song and their pain, uh, wow. their painful song around how it is for them. Uh, and it's to very reach
0: touching. Right like, to reach yeah. out because in my previously traumatized self, I'd experienced pain and I'd shut down, I'd turn away, I'd disconnect, I'd stuff it down, I'd put my blinders up, I would just go along my merry way in my merry life. And I, I got into trauma recovery to heal my own deep personal stuff. And what I ended up getting out of it was a, a bigger capacity to then connect to veterans. Right, to find solidarity with people who were previously the enemy, right? Or the people who abandon us or the people who rescue, right? Like to just let go of all of that and to the solidarity of united humanity. And to also connect with adult children of Holocaust survivors because they too were refugees, right? People who sought refuge. And when we work through and heal our own personal traumas, we're able to have a voice united and that is my hope and my wish out of all of this because trauma disconnects us and separates us and fragments us and when we do our own personal healing we can come together yeah, yeah. and then we no longer have that need rage shame cycle we feel our needs and we feel each other's needs and i don't shame or rage upon other people for their needs yeah.
1: Yeah. Mm. Why well, penetrating words, um, Linda, thank you. And, you know, again, <clears throat> being brought up in the war zone in Northern Ireland, how I saw that being repeated from generation to generation to generation. You know, I remember having friends or how we used to be friendly as we'd take each other down, you know, we, we'd shame one another, we'd guilt one another, we'd hurt one another. And that would be what humor would be and uh, i remember years and years later being in, in in america doing that to a man and him turning around and saying man like what are you doing like has i'm being funny he says that's not funny that's hard that's hurtful i was like such a wonderful moment again i'm so thankful for the people in my life who speak up and say when something's not okay uh to to catch that because i was running that thing that's all i saw around me it was such a an intense um normalized reality for me so so yeah, for people who are watching, you know, like just really, it's about like, in the time of change, the emergence of the world that we're living in right now, it's, it's really time to, to do your work and to reach out, to have a conversation, to, to, to read a book, to, um, to sit after this podcast is finished and notice like what, what resonates, like what percolates, what started, what got started, you know, um what moved you mm-hmm. yeah and and to maybe feel feel that place of what would it be to reach out you know like what you know, linda just demonstrated how she was able to to not be confined to this trauma response but it was to break through those barriers and be able to reach out to another soul and how limited we are and how rigid we are sometimes in our world it's so hard to do that so yeah, just a real invitation to know that just feel to notice what happened today for, for the for the viewer and to notice that yeah we we need each other and and to just do what it takes whether it's reaching out to a group therapist or to, to an individual therapist or a counselor to a, even to a healer maybe um, but just to feel 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 and ask maybe ask for what for the next step to present itself for you to trust in that also
0: um. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know what is stirred inside of you and what is emerging. Yeah. And can I trust in whatever it is that is emerging? Yeah. And then take one step. Mm.
1: and a couple of deep breaths.
0: <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> everybody, thank you, thank you, thank you for viewing. And Linda, thank you, it's, it's been an honor. I have a feeling we're gonna do this again sometime, but thank yeah. you for the, for the expanse of your heart, the mm-hmm. sort of solidness of your ground and the wisdom of your mind. Thank you, Linda Ty. everybody. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you, Nigel. Mm. Mm. It's
1: been a full meal, thank you so everybody thank you for viewing uh this is another real real conversation and for those of you who want to limber up and do some yoga and you haven't got a yoga class plan today or you just want to do some exercise reach out your arm extend it out and kind of do that little finger thing on the like share or or button uh on the, either any of the feeds it really helps us um This has been. uh, I just feel very honoured to be a witness today to what we've talked about, how we've, uh, what Linda has shared. So for anybody, again, just to really echo, you know, if you're listening afterwards or you're you've been listening, take a pause now, and feel into like what 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 got started, what what started to move, um, what stands out as something that got your attention, and to honour that, and as Linda says, just to take that next step, whatever whatever that might be for you and um and we're going to be here next week again for another real uh important conversation so thank you everybody and have a good week have a good weekend wherever you are lots of love thank you